Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. And I'm really, really happy to have Andrew Claven on this week. Um, he's a novelist, screenwriter, he's a satirist, a political commentator. Um, you may know him as the host of The Andrew Claven Show over at Daily Wire, or you may know him as the author of many books, but most recently for release, I believe tomorrow, um, is the, the Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. Um, so thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on High it's great to be here. Um, I really think like the central uh, sort of thesis of this book is that um, some of history's greatest poets and writers grappled with a lot of the same questions that I think largely uh, a lot of us in the West are now grappling with, which are questions of meaning, um, questions of, of what God wants from us, or questions of like uh, what the correct moral life is, how do we know um, you know, it, it seems to me that these are questions that um, not only were not, and well, I'm going to ask you in a minute how you got to where you are religiously, because I think that's itself a very interesting question. But these are not questions that we seem as a society more broadly uh, able to answer today. In fact, it's worse one step west, worse than that. It seems to me that they these questions aren't even acknowledged as questions anymore. Or well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, you know, the poets I'm writing about are mainly the romantic poets who lived in an age which was incredibly similar to this one. And I think for very much the same reasons, uh, key among them was the, the falling away of belief, the rise of science, which really got started uh, in a big way during the romantic period, which is the late 18th century and the early 19th century. Um, you know, just undermine the sense that things happen the way they happen in the Bible. It's not that science actually disproves religion in any meaningful way. It's just that it it does give, uh, give the aura, the feeling that things just don't happen the way the Bible stories say they do. And so this undermined belief. And when you lose belief, you lose a lot of things with it, which is really what the book is about. You lose a sense of your inner world and what the meaning of your inner world is. And once you lose that, uh, it becomes very hard, not only to search for meaning, but to understand that meaning matters. And I think that what you're saying is exactly right. We are in a position right now where if you notice when people talk about the inner life, what's sometimes called the subjective uh, life, that it goes in two extremes. Either they think the inner life means nothing so that, for instance, you can say, well, I think one thing is right and you think something else is right. And there's no way to tell the difference. You have a culture where women uh, have to dress in burqas. I have a culture where women are free to make their own choices. How can we tell which one of those is better than the other? Uh, you know, maybe you take a vote, but it doesn't really, there's no objective morality. So your subjective life is refers to nothing. On the other hand, you have an idea that the subjective life is absolutely sovereign. And frequently these two conflicting ideas are held by the same person. So that if I suddenly say to you, well, Inez, you know, I suddenly feel like a woman. Now I'm a woman. Now you have to change the pronouns by which you refer to me. You have to let me play in women's sports. You have to, uh, you know, refer to me as a woman because my inner life informs me that I'm a woman. So we have these two ideas that the inner life is meaningless on the one hand and is sovereign on the other hand, and both of those are untrue. Uh, and you have to, until you understand, until you can come together and find some way to proceed through your inner life, with your inner life, uh, you have no way of searching for meaning and people, I think, just give up. You know, the, the companion essay that you put out with this book over at The American Mind, um, you write something that I think is both very well stated, uh, which I would expect from a novelist, um, but well written, but also like a, a really important idea. You say the alacrity with which people retreated into cyber life at the threat of a nasty flu and the reluct reluctance with which they are reemerging does not augur any very popular attachment to the psychic battlefield of love and death that is RL real life. Um, you, you say in that essay that people may actually have a preference for dystopia. Um, and you point to various dystopian novels you point among them i think most importantly brave new world um and and you point out that actually in most of these dystopian novels we the the readers are sort of positioned as the single person who is horrified right we might have some somebody on the fringes of society that we're following as a main character but most people in most of these dystopian novels don't feel like they are living in a hell or a dystopia. They feel like they're living in, I, actually it was something you didn't cite in this essay, but it reminded me of The, the Great Divorce, right? Um, by C.S. Lewis, where the people in hell cannot tolerate being outside of it. Um, you know, how, how, do we, uh, how do we save ourselves from this? Uh, because it seems to, to me 
that it's very, very difficult to resuscitate. And I'm speaking personally and for society, it's very, very difficult to resuscitate faith once it's sort of fallen away as a, um, a default in, in sort of life and human civilization. It's very, very difficult to sort of punch your way or rationalize your way through. And it's very, very difficult to speak faith out of nothing um, in, in, in the individual and in society. I mean, how do we, is there any way that we can sort of punch through to the other side of this crisis or are we going, are we inevitably just going to end up on the metaverse? Um, because as you say, the, the psychic battlefield of love and death is, is actually doesn't seem to hold that much appeal broadly for so many people. Well, right. That's I mean, I, I believe that there are, I think all Christians believe that maybe they haven't thought of it in this particular way, that there is not an end of the world. There are two ends of the world. There's one end for the saved and one for the salvation impaired. You know, there's one for the people who opt out of dystopia and the other for the people who are perfectly happy to enter dystopia with its its drugs and its, uh, you know, kind of materialist pleasures and its inhuman humanity, a humanity that can possibly do more and live longer, but cannot become itself and cannot uh, grow to fruition as itself. So, yeah, part of finding uh, faith and part of finding your humanity is opting out of the general culture, which is always going to tend, as the Bible tells us, it's always going to tend toward the material and toward destruction. And and I think that the reason I'm I'm really happy you asked this question. You're the first person I've done a lot of interviews. And you're the first person who's asked me this question because this is what these poets were facing. This was exactly what these poets were facing. If 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 for instance, and this is an example I use in the book, if for instance you find that in the old days they rang a bell to chase lightning away, and it resulted in the guy who climbed up into the bell tower and rang the bell uh, getting killed by the lightning because he was up in a high place with metal. Uh, and then you find, oh, by science, I can put a lightning rod on there and avoid the lightning. What use is there to go back to the spiritual thought that brought you to ring the bell in the first place? It seems to that the entire spiritual approach to life has been undermined. And what these poets, especially William Wordsworth, because he was the first one kind of on the train, what they started to do is reconstruct the inner life in which these things matter. This is the question that is always disappearing. If you do not know what your inner life is about, if you do not put yourself, your own development as a human being, before any other purpose, you can't get back to faith. Almost the minute you do put yourself as a, as a purpose, you do see yourself as a point and purpose of your life, uh, you start to find that, oh, I'm not in here alone with my thoughts and uh, I'm not uh, solely governed by uh, eros, I'm not solely governed by chemicals, I'm not just a matter of uh, little uh, material interactions going on in my body. In fact, I'm connected to something bigger than myself. The life in me is part of a life outside. Once you get on that train, it's almost inevitable that you will start to see that there is a, a connection to something outside of yourself, that the world is actually uh, much bigger and your world is actually much bigger than it was. And then you start to make your way back to faith. Listen, I was, I was almost 50 before I was baptized. I was 45 before I gave up on uh, agnosticism, which was really atheism. Uh, it took me a long time to think my way out of the default settings of the time. And in doing that, literature was a great help, I think, because as, as C.S. Lewis said of William Wordsworth, if you start with him, you will end up with faith. And that happened actually Wordsworth himself. He ended up a believer. And so it really is a question of the inner life. I'm not the first person to say this, but I think when you start to look at uh, the Gospels a little differently than we are trained to look at them, I think most people look at the Gospels as a, a set of things that you shouldn't do. And then if you don't do them, you get to yell at somebody else who's doing them. Uh, and you get to talk about how, you know, how evil this is or how evil that is. I don't think that's what it's about at all. I think when Jesus said, judge not, he was be literally serious, that you should uh, put judgment away, that you should love your enemies. Once you start to do that, your mind is clear for a new experience of life, an experience of seeing life the way God sees it uh, as this important journey. I mean, you are part of creation. Your experience is a new thing. There has never been uh, an Inez walking down the street uh, that experience that you're having is fresh, new, different. It has never been had before. It'll never be have it had again. Everything that happens to you, once you see it from the inside, uh, is, is an act of creation and part of the creation. And so this is an, a revolutionary way of looking at the world, except it's 
over 2000 years old. I mean, it is what Jesus was trying to say after you get past the, you know, don't cheat on your wife, don't kill people, honor your father and your mother, all of which is important. But you, once you get past that, there's actually something he wants you to do. And I think that that's what I'm trying to get back at. And I think that's what these poets were trying to get back to from a place of utter destruction. Um, well, I guess this is a good time for me to ask how you went from secular Judaism to converting to Christianity, because that, that is not a popular path, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, Jews, Jews don't convert, right? Even, even those of us, <laughs> and I, I don't even really count because I'm like the wrong half, right? So I'm the patrilineal um, uh-huh. secular Jew. I mean, it's, it seems like you don't often see Jews converting um, to Christianity, even if they fall away from the practice of Judaism, that right. Judaism is is so orthopraxic and it's so much about practice and not as much about faith. Um, although, of course, faith is important too, but not to the extent that it is in Protestant Christianity, for example. Um, you know, how how did you get there? Because you, you you started out, it seems to me, in a very very different place, and you say you only um, you were you were baptized in your forties. So how how did you get there? Did you know, Jesus float down to you on a, cra- a cloud and say, uh, <laughs> you're, you're wrong. <laughs> I, no. And I frequently asked him why he didn't do that. Cause that would have convinced me instantaneously. Uh, but, but no, you're absolutely right. I was as far away as you can get. I sometimes say that, you know, cradle Christians are, are born at their destination, but I was like thrown out in the desert with a, like a piece of string and a paperclip and had to kind of make my way. Uh, not only was I a Jew, I was a secular Jew. Not only was I a secular Jew, I was, for lack of a better word, an intellectual or creative, whatever you want to call it, living in coastal cities where uh, non-belief was the default. So I was about as far away as you could get without actually being like a criminal, uh, but I was as far away from belief as you can get. And it started, I mean, for me, it started with literature when I began to realize when I wanted to be a writer and I was studying literature, I began to realize that all of the things that I found beautiful, all of the things that I found true, all of the stories that I loved had some connection to the Gospels. And since I had never read the Gospels and we didn't even have a New Testament in my house, why would we? Uh, I had to go out and get one when I was 15 years old simply to study it as, as a wannabe writer. Uh, what are all my favorite writers writing about? What do they mean when they refer to this thing? What do they mean when a character dies with his arms flung wide and, you know, you get the sense that his death has been some kind of redeeming act as happens in literature again and again. Um, and, and I started to read it and that was just the beginning of a journey. Um, where I started to realize that if these things that I knew to be true were true, uh, if the, there was a moral framework for the world, if uh, Dostoevsky was right and you aren't just, you can't just operate out of morality without falling into a web of, uh, of destruction, um, then there had to be at least a God of some kind. The reason I couldn't believe in that right away is because I was miserable. I had a, a difficult upbringing. I was, I was having, I was descending into madness basically. And in my late twenties, I actually just went nuts. I went insane. And, um, and so I thought to myself then with the stubbornness that is the center of my personality, I thought, well, if I reach out to God now, even though I've logically, I logically sort of believe there must be some kind of God. If I reached out to him now, it would just be a crutch and I would never be able to believe. So in my misery, when I actually needed God and when God was calling out to me in a thousand different ways, I couldn't answer that call because I would have felt that it was just a, an act of weakness. Um, by what I now consider to be a miracle, I, I found a, a, a genius psychiatrist who actually cured me. Uh, I, there's an old onion headline, uh, psychiatrist cures patient, uh, which I always thought was a great, a great headline. I'm that guy. I am the guy who found the right guy who somehow understood me and, and brought me back, uh, to a point of actual happiness. So I, I actually became a joyful, constructive person. And at that point, I started to think, well, wait, all of the things that I thought while I was miserable remain true logically now. And so maybe I have to start believing in this God that I have constructed from uh, from scratch and, and start to think about that. And I started to pray. And the prayer uh, transformed my life. And it transformed my life in ways that I could not have done alone, uh, indicating to me that I actually was praying to someone. Um, and after five years of prayer, when I was uh, now uh, close to 50, I, I realized that my life had utterly been transformed. And I mean, and it, it was it was truly, truly dramatic, uh, the kind of 
uh, happier person I'd become, the kind of more creative person, the more realistic person I'd become. And I just, I said to God at that point, well, you're God and I'm just some schmo, you know, like what, how can I repay you? What can I do, you know, in, in response to this? And while it wasn't a voice in my head, probably fortunately, I did have this immediate sense uh, that I should be baptized. And my my reaction to this was to say out loud in the middle of my prayer, you got to be kidding me. Why would why would I do that? You know, but it, for the first time, I went back to the Bible, which had always been a source of literature to me uh, and read it as if it might be true. And having done that, I thought, look, oh, yes, this is the God that I'm praying to. This is the idea that I, I'm trying to pursue. And at that point, I thought I have to be baptized as a matter of integrity, because obviously, if I'm believing in these things, it would be cowardice not to come out and say it. And all I can tell you about that is within three weeks of my baptism, my wife, who uh, to her suffering probably knows me better than anyone. Uh, but after th- really three weeks after being baptized, she turned to me and she said, you know, you're an entirely different person. You've become serene in a way I've never seen you become serene. You've become calm and just happy in, in a, a whole new way. And so it was obviously a good move. Uh, my fear about being baptized, and I think this is every secular Jew's fear or every secular person's fear, is that I would become an unrealistic uh, nutbag, you know, that I would become one of these guys who walked around talking about how blessed I was and uh, that everything was perfect because God loved me and, uh, you know, things that I just find absurd. Uh, But in fact, it made me far more realistic than I had ever been before, Uh, far more understanding of other human beings. It made my, it refreshed my art, which I had been very fearful of. I'd been very fearful that my hard boiled, uh, crime story art would suddenly turn into the, you know, like, uh, you know, this happy talk, um, Jesus stuff where, you know, a child loses her bunny, but Jesus brings it back again, you know, stuff I, I, I can't even look at, let alone read. Uh, but in fact, it became more realistic. It became deeper, it became richer, it became more varied. Uh, and so that all indicated to me that I had made the right decision and it has, continued like that ever since. You know, um, it's another way in which you're unusual, other than being a secular Jew who moved to Christianity, is that you're a a man of the right um, and an artist, right? So by which I mean, not just that you you write books, because many conservatives write books, but we tend to write books uh, that are nonfiction, right? (laughs) And and this book is is a work of nonfiction, but you've also written a lot of novels. Um, You were a screenwriter. And as you you just said, you know, one of the things you were afraid of is that your art would be in some way uh, not up to the standard that you would expect for yourself. Um, You know, what is the relationship between the artistic impulse and conservatism Um, because I've I've heard everything all over the map, right? I've heard that conservatives are just more sort of hard boiled and they prefer to go into, you know, business or, or, um, you know, other, other endeavors. They're more interested in making money. I've also heard that the, the theory that never until now never really seemed to me to be true. It seemed kind of lame. Like I remember coming up 10 years ago in Washington DC as an intern where I would go to these events and they'd be like, well, art is going to swing to the right because uh, we're the rebels now and, and they have the culture. So, you know, the, the rebellion of the artistic community is going to be um, on the right. I never truly saw that happening. And actually, I felt a lot about a lot of quote unquote conservative art, how you just described how you feel about the, the, the story of Jesus bringing back the bunny. Like, I just didn't think they had a lot of artistic merit to the project. And it was kind of didactic and politics first. I mean, what what do you think is the relationship between the right and and art in general at a time where that premise, that sort of lame premise actually does seem to be somewhat true that um, this kind of unthinking version of the left, the wokeness, has really sort of penetrated so deeply into um, our culture and, and all of the sort of mainstream expressions of art that they're losing their artistic merit. It really does just seem like being lectured by the party. Yeah. Uh, well, for for my sins, I've had a long time to think about this because uh, I, I lived in England for many years. When I came back, I, I left a liberal uh, and came back not realizing I had become a conservative. And one of the things I saw was that the culture had been so corrupted in my absence. You know how when you're away from something, you can see the change more easily. But after uh, 9-11, which happened right after I came back, I mean, months after I came back, um, I saw that people couldn't even muster up 
you know, our elites couldn't even muster up the idea that, oh, it was kind of wrong of these people to slaughter people uh, in the name of their, uh, you know, backward religion. And, and maybe we were right. And maybe are the things that had built us uh, to become who we are, including Christianity, maybe those things were right. We didn't even have that in us anymore. People were saying, why do they hate us? I was thinking they should hate us. They're terrible people. And we're the good guys. They, they, it would only be right for them to hate us. Um, and so I began speaking to conservative groups uh, about, you know, having abandoned the culture, you know, saying we lost it at the movies. We lost our country at the movies. And they, this is 20 years ago, and they looked at me like I was out of my mind. The only friend I made on this, because of this, was Andrew Breitbart, uh, who shared my idea that this was an important thing. And we became friends through that, that, that mutual effort to, to bring the right around to see the culture. And now we do see, in fact, 20 years later, that they actually are beginning to engage with culture at the Daily Wire, where I have my podcast. They're making movies. They're publishing books. They're doing all the things that I wanted to see done. And it's very gratifying to see that happen. So is it possible? Is it possible that the right will speak with a good artistic voice instead of a crummy artistic voice? And first, I, let me say yes. I mean, some of the greatest artists, I mean, the, one of the greatest artists alive, Tom Stoppard, although he's very old, was a Maggie Thatcher supporter and suffered and was canceled for it and uh, had to work very hard to overcome it. Uh, Cormac McCarthy, I think, keeps a, a low profile politically, but he's clearly a conservative. Uh, William Shakespeare has done pretty well, and he was obviously had a conservative point of uh, point of view. Um, but But I think that there are two things happening. There are two things that have prevented conservatives. One, we've been blacklisted. I know this for a fact. I mean, I worked in Hollywood. When I started talking about my politics, my phone stopped ringing instantaneously. My my income went from seven figures to nothing uh, overnight, just the minute I started uh, talking about this. Um, so when you blacklist people, when you close the door to people, they go away, they go elsewhere. I compare it to when they first started thinking about maybe some managers in baseball uh, should be black. You know, in, in athletics, blacks have a big presence. Maybe there should be ma managerial uh, presence for, for blacks. And they opened the door. No one was there. And they the first thing people started to say, well, maybe blacks can't be managers. Well, no, it's just if you close the door on people for 50 years, they're going to wander off somewhere else. And when you open the door, no one's going to be out there. So that's that's part of what has happened. But there is another strain to this, and that is, you know, um, my friend Ben Shapiro likes to say facts don't care about your feelings. And, and of course, he's right in, in what he's trying to say. But that also that insistence on the facts and that insistence that feelings are somehow second rate when, in fact, your inner life, the inner experience of being human is what life is all about. Um, that sometimes, I think, distracts uh, um, conservatives from the things that art requires. So, for instance, art does not require conservative art does not look like conservative life. I live a conservative life. I'm a family man. I'm a faithful, devoted husband. I don't, nobody wants to read about that. We want to read about Macbeth slaughtering his way to the throne of Scotland. You know, we want to read about people having affairs. We want to read about people uh, doing the things that people do because that is exciting and interesting and it takes you into the mind of man. So conservatives have a tendency to want their art to speaks to them what they already believe. And that, of course, is incredibly destructive to art. As you point out, it's incredibly destructive to the woke left because they want the same things. They want their art to tell them what they already believe. And, and the other part of this, I think, which is more to the point, is that when you abandon, as we were saying before, when you abandon your commitment to the inner life, you're left with nothing but the kind of garbage that Ayn Rand produces. One of the worst novelists who ever lived. I cannot believe that the right is still promoting uh, books that talk about how blowing up an orphanage is a, you know, lectures about how blowing up an orphanage is a moral act, uh, a complete, complete moral idiocy. The woman was a moral idiot and, and a terrible novelist. Her, her books are repetitive. Uh, they're overlong. They're very dull and they have nothing to do with the things on which our country is based. Our, our founding fathers and their, uh, those who preceded them weren't reading, they weren't watching Doris Day movies to learn about humanity, and they weren't reading books like Ayn Rand. They were reading deep books like Greek tragedy and Shakespeare that took them inside the world of, of human beings, inside the heart of, of people, uh, which is what all of this stuff is about. Why should people be free? What is the pursuit of happiness? You know, Republicans have gotten to the point where they talk about the pursuit of happiness 
as if it were building a business, you know, having a family, getting a nice car. Well, no, that's actually not the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness has to do with um, the Greek word eudaimonia, you know, the kind of fulfillment and joy and getting your spirits in the right place that can only happen by a commitment to the inner life. So there is this strain of conservative thought that has become just as materialist as leftism. Uh, and that is uh, a strain that is sapping the right of its power to make art. Artists were not always uh, left wing. This turn around starts in the Romantic era, which is what the truth and beauty is about. W William Wordsworth went from being a radical when the French Revolution started. He was there. He went to France to be a, a small part of the French Revolution, then saw that it failed and became a conservative. Well, you know, it was the beginning of cancel culture. He was ripped to pieces for his conservatism. I mean, there are literally famous poems by famous poets written about what a bad guy William Wordsworth is for becoming a conservative. So he was cancel cultured over the course of a century. I mean, he's still, those poems are still in anthologies, uh, ripping him for that. And yet, and yet, he was the one honest man who saw that the revolution had failed, that radicalism had failed, um, that Edmund Burke had got it right, and he changed to being a conservative. So that that moment is a change when, from when artists served the people to when artists conceived of themselves as informing the people, enlightening the people, that they, they were the people who were going to bring you their great vision. And that's how we get finally end up with Will Smith get, after smacking a guy in the face, giving an Oscar speech where he says, I'm a river to my people, to which Fran Lebowitz replied, you're an actor, you know, <laughs> you're an actor, speak the speech, you know, trippingly off the tongue. That's your job. Uh, so that that change in artists from being these entertainers who might enlighten you through the power of their muse to being the great prophets and rivers to the people is what keeps the right from understanding what their job is, that you can do the job of an artist without preaching. You can do the job of an artist uh, without spouting nonsense and political nonsense. You know, um, Antonin Scalia said, what, what does a Christian judge look like? And he said, he looks like a great judge. Well, my answer, what does a conservative novelist or a conservative artist look like? He looks like a great artist. Uh, he is not preaching his morality. He is not preaching God. He's not preaching conservatism. He is simply describing life as it is in the faith that life as it is will lead you to God and to conservatism. The truth will lead you to God and to conservatism. Even when you see works of art by leftists, if they're any good, they actually are conducive to conservatism uh, because true art, you know, because conservatism is just re realism, you know, and that's what true art gives you. So the, the answer to your question, I'm sorry to go on so long. The answer to your question is twofold. We have been blacklisted, but we have also uh, hooked our wagon to a false star, which is the star of materialism. And as long as we are concentrating on money and, uh, you know, and things that work as opposed to things that fulfill, uh, we won't be able to create great art. But that could change as well. Yeah, actually, maybe maybe um, Ayn Rand is a good point of of sort of digging down into this further because um, I, I didn't dislike her novels as much as apparently you did, um, but I, I didn't love them. And one of the the critiques that I had was actually the the only, as far as I'm concerned, the only interesting character that Ayn Rand has ever really written is Hank Reardon in um, Atlas Shrugged, and and not coincidentally, he's the only character who doesn't truly fit into her philosophy because he is very human and that's what makes him like a good character is that actually he does show weakness multiple times throughout the book he's not that like stone atlas right and ultimately that's why he's jettisoned in the most unrealistic way possible right um where he basically says you know oh yes your new lover is a better man than me i mean th this is completely <laughs> unrealistic when it comes to human nature but i i do i think it's actually a good example of what you're talking about right where if she were to write, like she did write that character well until she couldn't because it conflicted with the sort of the, the, the message she wanted to preach. Right. Right. Um, and, and that's then the character had to become less human, less realistic, less truthful in order to not conflict with that message. Um, so maybe that's a, something like, uh, that's how I would understand what you just said, uh, which is an interesting concept, right? That if you write about the, the truth of human nature and the truth of the human inner experience in a, an authentic way, 
um, that doesn't get bounced around by some like sort of commitment to preach a message that ultimately that exposition of human nature will trend towards reality, truth, and therefore conservatism. Is that yeah. kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And the conflict between the one and the many, the one in the community um, is a real conflict. It's not a one-sided thing. You know, uh, when I lived in England, they would always uh, upbraid themselves. The English loved to attack themselves. And one of the things they would attack themselves for, they would say in America, when you make a million dollars, you start to think about how to make your second million dollars, where if we make a million pounds, we retire and start to keep bees. And, and they, you know, and they would uh, kind of admire America for that. And I would say, well, you know, both of those things are actually legitimate approaches to life. Uh, you may still have other things that you want to build and other millions that you want to make, uh, but you may not. You may actually have a more fulfilling life uh, staying home and doing something else. And that, too, is life. You are not always responsible uh, to the best outward results. You know, you are frequently responsible and always, I would say, responsible to the best inward results. Some, and sometimes that helps uh, the outer world. You know, one of the ways our churches, I think, have gone astray is that they're trying to make the world a better place. And one of the things you'll notice if you go to the Gospels is Jesus never said the world was going to be a better place. He never said you were going to make the world a better place. He said, give, give your money to the poor, but the poor you always have with you. Follow me and you'll get crucified. Uh, you know, the world will hate you because it hated me. And it never, he never said, make the world a better place. Um, and so I, I do believe that if we, if we actually connected our inner lives to the spirit that created them, I do believe that the world, if a lot of us did that, I think the world would become a better place, but I'm not holding my breath. And I think that um, that means that your responsibility is first to that spirit that you were given, you know? And I mean, I think that, um, that the whole problem with Ayn Rand is her absolute rank materialism uh, judges people on their, uh, on, on their constructs, on the things that they build. That thing, that thing you mentioned where Reardon says your lover is, is a better lover than me. I mean, you notice that, that men in Ayn Rand are always raping women. Uh, there's no other word for it. And the women are always just absolutely loving it, you know. And, and I think that, that her view of human nature is fascist. I mean, she's a fascist. And, and I think that um, her, her view is empty. Uh, it's unappealing. And I think the more we lean into it, the more we lose any possibility of of converting those uh, who are looking at the woke left and thinking this is nonsense. I mean, look, the important thing is left wingers and right wingers are not any better than one another as people. Right. I believe that the rights general philosophy is as represented by the Declaration and the Constitution, is a better philosophy, a more useful philosophy, more conducive to human thriving, uh, as they say. But I understand that if rights had the cult, if the right had the cultural power the left has, we'd be making a lot of the same mistakes as they are. I would just like to see that happen so we can correct the uh, the, the curve a little bit. But yeah, you know, this is this is the whole thing. And as if if we don't understand. If we don't understand that our spirits are what the world is about, that we are spirits and not just animals, um, I don't understand how we can build anything but a zoo. You know, how, if we're animals, how can we build anything uh, but a kind of mechanical zoo? It's, it really is that conflict that's represented in science fiction. And in the book, I talk about Mary Shelley because she invented science fiction with Frankenstein. It's represented in science fiction by that conflict between machines and men. You know, whether you're talking about Terminator or The Matrix, there's always this kind of a threat that machinery itself will do the the job of living better than we can do it. And of course, a machine can live better than we can live, except it can't live at all because it has no inner life. And that's, that's the important thing. If we don't put that first, if we don't understand, again, if we don't understand that Inez walking down the street is an act of creation, her, her experience is an act of creation, her perceptions are an act of creation. If we don't understand that that act of creation is what she is here to do, and it is the representative of her creator, uh, continuing his work through her. If we don't understand that, then we don't know how to live. We don't know how to live. And I look at people, you know, <laughs> When I, before the, the shutdowns and COVID and everything, I was making a lot of speeches at colleges. And I used to get up uh, toward the end and I would say to people, you know, I'm an older guy. When I look at you, especially women, especially women, who I think are at the center of this for a lot of reasons we haven't discussed yet, but I think women are at the center of it. I, I said, a lot of the young women I see are miserable. And, and I said, if I'm wrong, 
please, when I'm finished with my speech, get up and tell me I'm wrong and explain to me what I'm missing. Not once did any woman stand up and tell me I was wrong. The opposite. They lined up to tell me how miserable they were. And I think that 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 is indicative of the fact that women who are more connected to people uh, than men are um, have have been taught and told that that is a weakness in them, that their love of children is a weakness in them, that their role as creators of not just of physical life, but of moral and spiritual life is a secondary role. Um, That is part of this march of materialism uh, toward a sort of matrix-like world where we're nothing but uh, batteries uh, feeding machines. That's the world that we have to opt opt out of if, if we want to live. And when I say live, I mean truly live. You're, you're actually sort of leading um, where I wanted to go next because I wanted to ask you if the devaluing of this inner life that um, that that the poets that you wrote about in this book um, felt so strongly was important. It, is it connected uh, to the devaluing of femininity? Because uh, it seems to me that like a lot of what you just said is true, right? That women... Um, are more fulfilled than I can give you the brain science to, to back this up, but I shouldn't have to. It should be just obvious when you look around that women tend to find fulfillment in interpersonal relationships um, more so than men, which is not to say that men don't value interpersonal relationships, but men also get a, a great amount of fulfillment from building what you would call the material, right? Like to point to something and say, I built that um, seems to fulfill men more than women, which is not, to, again, this is not like a didactic, sort of preaching thing. And this just seems to be an observation. There are exceptions on both sides. But if if the inner life um, is less important than the material, um, or on the flip side, as you, you started out talking about it, it's it's everything, um, but but essentially on a whim, it seems like we've we've collapsed femininity into something that is sort of childish and saccharine um, in a way that makes it very, very unappealing. Like even Mm. to somebody like me who is, you know, call myself an anti-feminist, right? Um, A lot of times I have people say, well, like actually conservatives come to me and and they they talk about like essentially the fifties or um, this kind of, I think you referenced Doris Day, right? This like Doris Day style uh, femininity that they want to champion. And that also seems to me to be, in some way, like, uh, unappealing or flat. Um, I think there's probably a reason that we launched feminism and all of its sort of modern destructions out of the 1950s, um, that it didn't come about by accident, that actually, you know, this vision of femininity is constricting uh, in, in a more fundamental way to women as human beings and not as, as I think we just got it wrong. Like, it's not about the difference of sex differences and the fact that men and women live different lives, but... It's that women do have this inner life and they do have, um, you know, important sort of questions and, and, and thoughts and, and to, to collapse femininity into a Doris Day sort of saccharine childish image has always seemed to me um, almost like just the flip side of trying to make women more masculine. We've collapsed masculinity as well into something that's flat and unappealing. Yeah. Well, this is uh, one of the, I think one of the most important chapters in the truth and beauty is about Mary Shelley. And when you say, talk about feminism, her mother was the proto-feminist. Mary Wollstonecraft wrote the justification of the rights of women. And she was uh, coming up right at this moment when the industrial revolution was, was taking hold. If you go back, I mean, just playing off what you just said about the reduction of, of femininity, the reduction of, to a childlike uh, quality, you go back and you read Proverbs 31. You know, this is the thing that evangelicals are always talking about. Oh, I want a Proverbs 31 woman. I want a Proverbs 31 woman. And it starts, you know, who can who can describe a virtuous woman whose price is worth more than rubies? You go back and look at it. She, she's not a, a, a Dora's Day character. She's a businesswoman. She is a, a complete um, uh, a complete person. She's trading land. She's growing an orchard. She's feeding her family. She's doing all these things, all of which was taken away from her by the Industrial Revolution. All the home industries were destroyed by the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, they used to call women the distaff because a distaff was the thing you used for making clothes. Well, 
making clothes was a major, major industry. And life is very hard when you don't have clothes, uh, especially out in the weather, you know, so making clothes was a huge especially deal. Especially for women. Yeah, especially for, for women. Kinds of <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So the distaff was like an important business to be a part of. Running a home was a major thing. The factories not only took those uh, um, jobs away, uh, it also took the children away off to factories in the city from which they didn't return, which made them less valuable than they had been because they used to run the farm after you became too old and they used to become, they were called the poor man's wealth. Children were called the poor man's wealth. So here were women who were producing the poor man's wealth and now suddenly that wealth was worth much less. The reaction to that uh, is was to spiritualize women's tasks. Uh, so suddenly in the Victorian era, you get what was called the angel in the house, you know, which was like kind of this almost like, you know, fantasy character. And I quote some of the poetry that's written about her and it's so bad. Uh, but, you know, it's like the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world was the one of them. And, uh, and, and yet, and yet there still was the need for this spiritual role of motherhood. Uh, and yet, but their job, but their role as a socially important person uh, had been stripped away. So, so Mary Shelley is this 18, 19 year old girl who's run off with a poet who believes in free love and believes that marriage is trash as her mother believed, as her father, a famous philosopher, uh, also believed. She's hanging out with Byron, who's sleeping with everything, man and male and female that he can get his hands on. Uh, and her, her children or she has children out of wedlock and they die. And Shelley's wife that he abandoned for her kills herself. Uh, and she's sitting there and she adored Shelley. I mean, as she adored her father, she adored Shelley. She's a very feminine lady. You know, she's looking for somebody. Uh, she's looking for a man in her life. And unfortunately, she picked Shelley. And she comes up with this horror story about a man who creates a living human being, Frankenstein. And a lot of people say, and including Mary, including, she says this herself, that it's a story about what happens when man tries to usurp the role of God by creating life. But men and women create life all the time. So he's not usurping the role of God. He's usurping the role of women. He's creating a motherless creature. And the motherlessness of this creature underlies the entire book. You can pick out the, the passages where the mother, his motherlessness is what is making this monster, turning this creature into a monster. And ultimately, what does he come to Frankenstein and say? He says, build me a woman, build me an Eve so that I can be a human being too. And this, this idea, many of the romantic poets lost their mothers young. Keats is said to have crawled under a table when he heard that his mother had died. Uh, Wordsworth's whole life fell apart when his, his parents died. And Wordsworth writes this incredibly beautiful and prescient passage in his autobiograph autobiographical poem, The Prelude, in which he says that in the interaction between an infant and his mother, and they thought about infants and their mothers all the time. They were very obsessed with this. He said, this is where the child becomes a human being. In the love that he takes from her, the world becomes animate to him with love. He begins to understand the world as a loving thing, and he becomes creative through this interaction. This turns out, you know, I don't want to say this has been scientifically proven and therefore it's true. It was true when Wordsworth said it. It's now got a scientific analog that we know that children are born with these things called mirror neurons in their brain and the interaction between a mother's uh, eye, between the mother's eyes and the child's eyes brings these neurons to life and gives the child individuality, which he doesn't have when he's born. When he's born, he's almost just in his own self. He's almost just a part of the mother. So now we understand that motherhood is actually not just the role of turning matter into life. It's actually the role of turning life into humanity. Uh, and so it's just, it is essential. And, and one of the hopeful things that is on offer right now is that computers uh, and, and this uh, Internet age have brought the possibility of home industries back. Uh, so that the thing that was taken away by technology may be restored by technology and women can live that full life that they live before. Um, there's a wonderful story about it. The explorer named Mungo who went to Africa, one of the first uh, Europeans to go into Africa. And he just had a terrible time. He was beaten. He was robbed. He was stripped of everything. And he was discovered almost dead by these women. And they took, <laughs> took him in to their home and took care of him. And they would all weave clothes together uh, and they would sing songs. They would make up songs. And he realized that the song they were singing was the poor white man 
No mother has he, no one to make his food, no one to give him clothes. And they understood that they were essential. They weren't just these Doris Day, uh, you know, kind of flibberty gibbets who cried uh, easily. They were actually the backbone of their civilization. They understood that what was missing in this poor white who had turned up on their doorstep was was women. You know, was there was no one to take care of it. And and so while I sympathize, while I sympathize with the, the feminism, the reasons for feminism, uh, I, I think that it has lost its purpose. What happens to all leftists, all materialists, actually, all materialist philosophy starts out attacking something and ends up adopting it. Mm-hmm. So they started out by saying, well, women are important, too, and ended up by saying, well, women should be men and then they'll be important. If women act like men, they'll be important. Um, if women can fight like men, if they can screw like men, if they can, uh, you know, have careers like men, then, 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 then they will be important. Not if we build a world in which women can have full lives as women, which would be a totally different thing. Um, you know, so, so that, that's where the thing goes wrong. Yes, there was a problem. Yes, the problem needed to be fixed. Yes, we want women, women to have full rights to choose the path that they take. But that doesn't mean they're choosing right when they choose feminism. I think they're not. I think they've become, they've made themselves miserable. Um, and so this is, this is a moment in time when the industrial revolution had essentially destroyed and lowered the worth of women as women. Moving to this time when actually technology has restored the possibility of that complete life that women had before. Uh, and it's just going to be a question of whether women choose to say, you know what, you know, we're not sword fighters. We're not, we, you know, we're not military people. And as, as you say, of course, you know, one of the things I, I was talking about this recently that the left has done is they've made it impossible for us to generalize. They've taught us that generalization is a personal insult. So if I say, well, men are stronger than women, you know, I'm going to get a letter from somebody saying, well, my sister-in-law could, you know, she beat the crap. At it. You know, and you go like, yes, but still the generalization holds true. You know, if I say, human beings are two-legged creatures. Somebody writes to me and says, well, my son only has one leg. Is he not a human being? Yes, he is, but human beings are two-legged creatures. And so, and so the things that I'm saying, of course, are generalizations, but they're important generalizations because the mother-father um, bind, the mother-father family is what a free society rests on. It can rest on nothing else. It is where the humanity of people come from. It is where they're their inner lives become creative. It is where they learn the discipline that you need to be free. Uh, and, and the left, because they don't want us to be free, has done everything they can to destroy that discipline. Yeah, we, we really live under a tyranny of exceptions. Um, that, that's right. In, that's in, right. in many ways. Phrase, and, yeah. um, and and it, it really does cripple our thinking. Um, I find even, and I, I like kind of consciously trying to train it out of my thinking, but um you know, we even cripple internally. It cripples us how we, because I think our, our brains are pattern recognition machines. It's literally what, um, you know, what we do best in terms of, of thought is recognizing and generalizing from the particular patterns into something more generally generally applicable. And, and it's almost like we're training ourselves not to do that and to be tyrannized by the fact that somewhere on the tail end, um, there is someone who this doesn't apply to. And of course, the purpose of a free society is in part to allow the exceptions to exist um, and, and not to coerce the exceptions into the the general rule. But it seems like we're almost living in the reverse where we're incapable of, of putting forward any general rule or any general observation for the betterment of society, that it's generally good for people to live in a particular way Um we're, we're incapable of, of saying that because there are exceptions. And in doing so, we create like a, a demand for exceptions, right? Uh, and I think that's very much what you're talking about with women being miserable. We create a demand for the like, you know, ass kicking woman um, that is is held up in Hollywood as the only standard. Um, but it, the reality is most women, I'm not saying there are no women like that, but most women aren't happy living that way. Yeah, well, that's um, right. And the right falls for it every single time, by the way. The right says, well, our women can kick ass better than your women. You know, it's like, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it is absurd. It's, you know, it starts, I think, with Nietzsche, kind of his idea that uh, society is not a good place until every possible exception is accommodated. Um, but if you go back to the, the great Plato Aristotle divide, uh, that marks all, almost all of Western thought, 
Um, it's a div divide over the uses and possibilities of form, the things that make things collectible, that make them collect, you know, that make it, that, that what makes a chair a chair and not a desk. Why can I say that that is what it is? It's, you can't have science without that. You can't have medicine unless doctors can generalize about symptoms and say they go, they fall into this category, which we will now name a disease. Um, you can't do anything. You can't move without form. And funnily enough, almost paradoxically enough, uh, tolerance of difference depends on a strong central core. And if you are have a society of families, of mom and dad families, and somebody comes along and he's gay, you know, you can live with that. But if what you're going to do is celebrate every various form of uh, sexuality that might flicker through the mind of a seven-year-old, uh, you are going to find that you don't have the core that will support the tolerance that you want. Yeah, and, and famously, as Paulia wrote, it also destroys the the exception to make it right. the rule, right? right. Um, it, it destroys, for specifically, she wrote about like the erotic, right? It destroys the erotic to make it mainstream. She famously loved Madonna, but she thought that MTV was right to ban her. She wrote that great column, and then I think in the New York Times, back when the New York Times published things that were interesting, uh, but essentially saying this is a fantastic piece of pornography. It shouldn't be on MTV. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, we've totally lost the ability to, to make those kinds of distinctions. But um, Andrew Clavin, thank you so much for, for coming on High Noon. I know you must have uh, plenty of wisdom, not only that because of what you've shared with us today, but because uh, if, if, if somebody can be judged by the way that their kids turned out, that that kid that isn't actually your kid on social media, <laughs> he's, he's pretty great, too, Spencer. Um, he, he's a he's a remarkable man too so thank you, um, so you must much. have done you must have done a lot of things wise and right in your life i married um, <laughs> well thank you so much for for coming on and, and sharing this hour uh with us on high noon and thank you to our listeners high noon with inez stepman is a production of the independent women's forum as always you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on apple Podcasts, Acast, google play um iwf.org, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Be brave. We'll see you next time on High Noon.